I turn your attention now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Why do people in court remain silent? In America, it's usually because the Constitution of the United States has something called the Fifth Amendment. You've, have you ever heard of it? You, ever, you know, someone says, I refuse to answer the question uh, on the grounds that it may incriminate me, so I plead the Fifth Amendment. In this passage, Jesus is silent as he's being arraigned and as he's being judged. Was he just pleading the Fifth Amendment? Not at all. This is an amazing passage. In the darkness of night, Jesus is arraigned in the house of Caiaphas. Now, I have to tell you, just personally, for me, this passage is always very emotional to read it, especially at the end of the passage, as they are beating him and spitting on him and mocking him as they, as they sla have slandered him and falsely accused him, I remember as a young Christian reading this and weeping. And if, if you've ever seen someone being picked on or beaten up or, 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 or uh, 
spit. I, you know, I've actually been spit on. It's one of the most humiliating experiences. But they might do that to me. But this is Jesus. This is the one who spoke with grace and truth. This is the one who loved the leper and the widow and welcomed children. This is the one with all the wisdom and goodness of God and the love of the Father pulsing through him. How could they? But you know what? Over the years, yes, I did weep as I saw this injustice and cruelty to Jesus, but over the years, this passage has also become amazing to me. Even tears of joy, if you understand what happens in the darkness of that night and what Jesus says. So my first point is just this. Jesus is arraigned and tried in the courts, and in the midst of it all, we see his resolve to love us to the end. Verses 57 to 61 set the scene for us. This is where those who seized him in the Garden of Gethsemane have now brought him. And, and if you piece together the four Gospels, it's not exactly clear, but it's pretty clear. There are a number of trials, actually six moments of trial that night as they are rushing their prosecution of Jesus. First, he goes to the house of Annas. Annas is like the senior statesman of the priesthood at that time, the retired high priest and um, sort of the uh, major domo of that group of people. And from there, he sends Jesus to Caiaphas, the house of Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law. It's a powerful family that is ruling in the, in the priesthood at the time. And there in the house of Caiaphas is what we are reading about here. From there, he sent to the civil trials of Pontius Pilate, who sends him to Herod, who sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And then, and then there is a final assembly of the Sanhedrin, we read in chapter 27 of Matthew, where they pronounce their verdict in the church court of death after they have persuaded the Romans that Jesus is claiming to be a king, and that is treason worthy of death. So we're now in that second scene in the house of Caiaphas in what you might call a kangaroo court. Have you ever heard that term, a kangaroo court? It's called that because it's, it's a courtroom scene where the prosecution nimbly jumps over like a kangaroo. They jump over things like evidence that might be favorable to the defendant. And it's a kangaroo court where they ignore the rules of uh, proper jurisprudence. They jump over it to get to their predetermined verdict. And we are told in this passage they have already determined Jesus is guilty and worthy of death. They just need to figure out how to get there. That's what's going on. But Jesus does not put up a fight. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where the fight was when Jesus was tempted, right? Tempted to turn away from drinking the cup, but instead with majesty, even as he sweats drops of blood, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And then he says, arise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. And last week, Martin took us to his arrest. And there, as the, as the, as the guard came and captured Jesus, and he was betrayed with a kiss, and Peter wants to fight, but Jesus says none of this. He even heals the poor guy whose ear got sliced off. And the disciples fled. And now Jesus is alone. And he is alone because Christ alone can save us. And because Christ alone can love us. And in John chapter 13, verse 1, we read, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you know that verse? Is it highlighted in your Bible? I think the King James says he loved them to the uttermost. And there is nothing that will stop him now from loving you, from atoning for your sins. Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he says, We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. That's next week. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. See, that's my flesh. I love you this much, and some of you are much better people than I am, and you'll love someone this much. But Jesus does not put a limit on his love. He loves to the end. And so as this proceeds, point number two, Jesus speaks loudly by his silence. Now again, back in verses 59 and 60, there's all this false testimony against Jesus. As people distort what he said and malign his character. They disparage who he is and what he has done. False testimony. Distortion. Those things happened then. You know, they happened in the ancient church. They happen today. People malign Jesus and distort what he has said and what he has done even today. That happened to him that night. In Mark's gospel, they actually talk about these false witnesses, and Mark notes that they don't agree. <laughs> One commentator told the joke about four college students who conveniently missed their final exam, and they came into the classroom after the exam was over, and, and they said, well, we were coming, but our car had a flat tire, so we missed the exam. And the teacher said, no worries. I'm going to give you a short exam right now. And she put four chairs in four corners of the room and gave them a paper, and she said, just one question on the exam. Which tire was flat? Mm. <laughs> See, it's hard to get liars to agree. And that's what's happening in, in that room that night until finally... Two men come and accuse Jesus essentially of being a terrorist. 
He said he was going to destroy the temple, our beloved temple. But John notes in his gospel, even when it was recorded in John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then John says, and the temple of which he spoke was his body. It was abundantly clear. He is the temple of God. The irony is this very charge against him about destroying the temple is going to fulfill what Jesus prophesied in John 2 near the beginning of his ministry. He would be put to death and in three days rise again because of that very moment and these spurious allegations coming against him. And people today misrepresent and scorn Jesus. You know, back in the first century, because Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, people accused Jesus of advocating cannibalism. Nonsense. We studied that at the Last Supper, what he was talking about. Some people distort Jesus today as though he's this big vending machine in the sky and they present a false Jesus. Oh, uh, an old college friend I ran into here in Oyster Bay. We just happened to cross each other. He said, you're a preacher, Yenchko? He said, let me tell you about Jesus. I said, okay, thank you. He said, Jesus was a guru. That's it. How does Jesus respond in our text? It's so interesting. In this kangaroo court, Jesus is silent. Silence. The high priest stood up. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. What does the silence say? Brothers and sisters, it says that first, it says Jesus knew this was a kangaroo court. He knew that this was unjust. And I don't know, but maybe you've said once in a while when somebody accuses you of something, you've said, I'm not even going to dignify that accusation with a response. I'm not going to even give it an answer. That may be going on, but I think, my friends, what the silence means is that Jesus is showing to us that he is willing to die for our sins. You know, my reaction, maybe yours, but my reaction, how dare you say those things about me? How dare you accuse me of that evil intent? Why would you say that about me? But not Jesus. Why not? Because he is willing to suffer this indignity. The cornerstone is willing to be rejected that he may die for you because he loves you. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Do you know the verse? You should know this verse. It is a prophecy looking forward to the servant of the Lord when he comes, and it says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But we continue, point number three. Because at the end of verse 63, Caiaphas is frustrated by the silence of Jesus. And the third point is that Jesus speaks to us loudly now by his stunning self-revelation. Caiaphas can't take this silence. And so he puts Jesus under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is the most solemn oath that anyone can take. This is not some trivial put your hand on the Bible and say, so help me God. This is not that. This is commanding the person to speak and give an answer as if they had to answer God. And so, now, in the darkness of that night, humiliated and shamed, captive and falsely accused, Jesus now speaks and he reveals himself and confesses his true identity and his true glory. First, in this interesting response in verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now, this is interesting. In his comments on the passage, Ligon Duncan says, maybe you might think Jesus is giving an ambiguous answer because he starts off by saying, well, you've said so. <laughs> but he is not giving an ambiguous answer. Jesus is saying, as I now, under oath, before God, tell you the truth, first of all, yes, you have said it with your own lips. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the Christ, he is saying. I am the Son of God. Now, to us, we who know that that is true, that is an amazing encouragement. But to them, as they heard it, it was an outrage. And the ears of Caiaphas turn red, and they begin to burn as Jesus now says, yes, I am the Son of God, the claim to deity. Do you get that? And by saying this, Jesus knows that he is now sealing his own death. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the rest of the verse. Now it continues. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is astounding. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus is having a Bible study with the Sanhedrin. And he takes them straight to Psalm 110, verse 1. He takes them straight to Daniel 7 that we read earlier in the service, uh, verses 13 and 14. And he says, let me tell you something. I am claiming to be much more than you ever dreamt I have claimed to be. I'm not some lunatic with messianic delusions. Do you guys know Daniel 7, 13 and 14? He says to Caiaphas and the, and the rulers of Israel, once again, 
the apocalyptic night vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus is saying, I am that one. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him. Jesus is saying, that's me. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You guys are going to see it. Your eyes will be opened. You will see me come on the clouds to the throne of heaven. And by the way, do you know Psalm 110, verse 1, the great messianic psalm, the first verse of the greatest messianic psalm? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Caiaphas, I will be seated at the right hand of God. And those who have set themselves up as my enemies, all those... All those who have lived in rebellion against me, they will be under my feet. They will be in submission, and you will see it. Do you see what he's saying to the high priest? Now that he speaks the truth of God, he's saying, you think that you are my judge, but I am your judge. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus has been established as the judge of all the earth. And as he's talking about judgment, he told them back in chapter 24 that judgment would fall upon Israel in, in 70 A.D., and indeed it came to pass. They, he told them they would live to see it, and they did. He says here, you will see it, but it, whatever that is, it only is a microcosm. It's only a foreshadowing of the great white throne judgment of God at the end of the days. And it's coming. Acts 17.31. I put it in your sermon outline. An important verse. Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Who is that? Do you know? Who is that? It is Jesus. And Jesus says, I am he, and you guys will see it now. By the time that little Bible study is over, their faces are red, and their ears are burning. And they are saying, in their own minds, they are saying, you know what? We don't even need these false witnesses. This doesn't even need to be a kangaroo court. We thought it would have to be, but it doesn't because Jesus has transgressed Leviticus 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And with all that Jesus has now said about being the Christ, the Son of God, 
claiming to be the Messiah who would be at God's right hand, about him being the Son of Man with dominion and glory, and who will open the books and be the judge of all. Caiaphas tears his garments and says, Blasphemy. And he looks, he says, What else can you say? Men of God, you elders and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders, you vested with spiritual authority, what else can you say? And they all said, blasphemy, he is worthy of death. But we, and I hope you're in the we, we believe that Jesus spoke accurately. We believe that his life of love, his inestimable wisdom that pierced the heart, his compassion, his mercy, his holiness, his beauty, all commend him to us. He is who he says he is. He's the Christ. So who do you believe today? Do you believe Jesus or do you believe Caiaphas? You know, I have many friends who are atheists, and I'm glad to have them as my friends. And most of them cavalierly, easily dismiss Jesus, and they believe that there will be no judgment day. And I say to them, well, you know what? If there is no God, there will be no judgment day. If Jesus was deluded, if Jesus was a liar, there will be no judgment day. And they say, whew, I'm off the hook. It's a relief to them. But then I remind them that I believe actually Jesus was right in his self-revelation. I believe he is the Messiah. I believe he is the Savior and the judge of all men. And I remind them that if I am right, and more importantly, that if Jesus is right, then all, uh, all their unbelief in the world is not going to stop the judgment day. It is true that all my faith won't make there be a judgment day if there is no God, but oh, friend... If Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he came to do, and if the God of the Bible who has revealed himself in creation and has revealed himself accurately in his word, as he stands, there will be then a day of judgment, and we must all ask, am I ready? So, at the end of point... Three here, do you live with an awareness that Christ is coming again, that he will judge the quick and the dead, that he will make all things new, and the world will respond with praise, even as he executes his justice and as he shows his mercy? Well, now they have him. The blasphemy is unacceptable, and in their eyes... And so, point four, they slapped him and mocked him, and he takes it. 
He takes it for you and for me. Then the high priest tore his robes. They've all said he deserves death, and they now begin to humiliate him even more, punching him, spitting on him, mocking him. Humiliation, shame, and then death. Isaiah 50, verse 6, the servant of the Lord said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Was Jesus some sort of masochist, somebody who liked pain? No. Hebrews 12, verse 2, Hebrews 12, 2, tells us he despised the shame. He despised the shame, but he would endure the cross, despising the shame. For you and for me, he took it for you. This is what the theologians properly call the passive obedience of Christ. Is that a term you've ever heard? It's a very important theological term. At North Shore Community Church, we are always talking about the active obedience and the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get all theological about it all the time, but we tell you his active obedience is that he lived the life you should have lived, perfectly fulfilling the law in your place. And then we read, we say, he died the death you deserve to die. That is his passive obedience. He is now receiving the penalty that sins deserve. He who is sinless receives the penalty. He takes it. He is passive. He was silent. He did not revile. He did not seek revenge. Martin read for us last week. Jesus said, I got 72,000 angels. Last week, that was in his text. Jesus said, I have 72,000 angels. Peter, with your puny sword and your lousy aim, you think you can stop what's coming? I have 72,000 angels who are there with bated breath, ready just for Jesus to point the finger. Come on, Jesus. And he says, no, there is another way. For I must go to the cross. His whole life, active obedience in love to his Father, and his whole life, but particularly now at the end, his passive obedience as he goes to die the death. And he will take the punches. He will take the slaps. He will take the mocking and the spitting that is so humiliating. He will take a crown of thorns and nails in his hands and in his feet, and he will bleed and shed his blood for you and for me. Point five. How does the Bible apply this unjust treatment of Jesus to your life? And as we go back to John 13, verse 1, this is the first thing. Why? Why, Jesus, are you doing this? Because he loves you to the uttermost. He loves you to the end. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've said. It's true, I don't. You don't know the things I've done and I've said. 
that we're wrong or sinful. But Jesus loved you to the uttermost, to the end. And here at his arraignment and in his trial, it is exquisite. And we will see more of this next week. He loves you to the end. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I want you to believe it. And then Peter, we are told, who's sitting and watching. Peter will never forget this night. Not only from what is about to happen, but because he has observed what has just taken place. And in his epistle to the churches of Asia, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, mocked, beaten, spit on, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen, when you are mistreated, when you are falsely accused, when you experience injustice, everything inside of you cries out, I want revenge. You who are beloved by Jesus, who loved you to the end, don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus gave you the example. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Because as we've already seen, that day is coming. That day is coming. And he will resolve it far better than you will by your fists or by your return insults or your trash talk or whatever you do. And trust that Jesus will judge justly when he returns. And then 1 Peter 4 Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe you're listening and... You never have. You've always dismissed him. But as you have observed him through this text today, you are saying, wow, he is awesome. He is the son of man in glory. He is the lover of my soul, and I know it now for the first time. If that's you, would you open your heart and receive him? Would you acknowledge him? to be your Savior, whose blood was shed for you, for all your sins. And if you are a Christian and your heart has grown cold, have you become indifferent as you see him suffer this night for you? And if you thought, Jesus, Jesus, stand up for yourself, but he didn't because he went to the cross for you and for me, then understand 
One writer, this is my last sentence, one writer wrote, God was on trial that day. The world was judge and jury. This was the path that Jesus chose to take. And the cross is the loudest message that Jesus could ever state, saying, I love you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, why would Jesus go through all of this? How amazing it is to our ears that you loved us to the end, not part way, all the way. In the Bible, we hear unflattering words to describe us. And maybe some people are upset even listening, but we hear words like transgressor, dust and ashes, sinners, adjectives used like vile or filthy. And yet, O oh Lord, in our heart of hearts, we know that each and every sin is noxious, stinks, it stinks before you. And yet, today, we marvel at your grace that you would shed your blood for us and then rise again and be received. You came on the clouds of heaven back to the throne of the Ancient of Days, back to God the Father. And there in glory you rule now, and from there you will come in just judgment, but in justice to make all things new. And we will praise you. So, we renounce right now, we all renounce self-salvation. And we look for our salvation to Christ alone the anchor, the source, the cornerstone of our eternal life. In his name we pray, amen. So let's conclude with this song that we love, this song, we call it Cornerstone, Christ Alone. <laughs>